Villas Grace Church. Building relationships that make followers of Jesus. Know, grow, go. To know him, to grow in him, to go with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you and sing songs worshiping your name. Now we turn in our worship to the proclamation of your word, Lord, and I pray that we allow your truth to penetrate our hearts, to allow your Holy Spirit to do his work. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, who's made all of this possible. Amen. Some of you have heard of the Iron Man, and it says Ultimate Iron Man Training Guide. So those of you that don't know what an Iron Man is exactly, an Iron Man is really simply a triathlon, but it's not your run-of-the-mill triathlon. The full Iron Man is no joke. And if you don't know what a triathlon is, you basically swim, you bike, and then you run. But check this out. I want to give you some stats on a full Iron Man. There are lessers than this. This is the full Iron Man. This is going to consist in one day, mind you. You have to do this all simultaneously. There is a time limit, so you have to complete it in a certain amount of time. But it's a 2.4 mile swim. And then you immediately get on your bike and ride your bike for 112 miles. And then you jump off of the bike and then you have the opportunity to run a full marathon, which is 26.2 miles. The average person can complete this full Ironman in about 13 hours. Now, some of us are, are thinking to ourselves right now, let alone run one mile without stopping to walk, let alone 13 hours? I mean, that's, that's a full day in and of itself. You're basically doing cardio all day, and then you're going to sleep thereafter. Essentially, the Ironman is a race. Now, it's not a race for all people. All who do the Ironman aren't actually racing. So some of these individuals who participate in an Ironman are actually competing against the other participants. So that's going to make you work just that much more harder. For others, though, it's not a race against others. It's a race for themselves. They are racing against themselves and they are their own motivators because maybe they're trying to get the best time they've ever had or maybe their simple goal is to complete the Ironman in the allotted time that they're being allowed to complete this Ironman. See, the Ironman though, unfortunately, for those of you that are thinking about maybe participating in one, don't plan on doing it anytime soon because an Ironman is nothing that you can do off of the couch. You can't just jump off the couch and then go do an Ironman. If you're in good shape right now, let's say, let's say you're, you're mildly fit, maybe it's going to take you six months of training to complete an Ironman. If you are jumping off the couch to start your training, it's going to take you a full year. So either six months of training or a full year of training just to do this one race for around 13 hours on any basic day. But basically, when we're talking about training, anybody that knows anything about training, it's really all about suffering, isn't it? In training, an athlete's heart and lungs are actually being strengthened. They're strengthened to endure the long duration of the suffering that they're actually experiencing while they're doing the competition that they're in. Brothers and sisters, this is like us as Christ followers. We're training. We're strengthening ourselves spiritually. 
Because what did we learn in the beginning of the book of James, as we're in the book of James right now, that series that we're in, Faith Works? If we go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 2, what does James tell us? He says, meet trials of various kinds. So for the purpose of being strengthened in suffering or suffered so we can suffer or strengthen in our suffering, we're going to meet trials of various kinds. And this is just like an athlete would patiently endure the 13 hours in the race that they're running. We as Christians should be patiently suffering, awaiting the return of Jesus, because after all, we should all be running our own race alongside the Lord. And this brings us to the title of our sermon this morning. That title is this, Patience While Suffering. Patience While Suffering. Today we're going to be in James. We are getting close to wrapping up James. We're in the fifth chapter. We're looking specifically at verses 7 through 12 this morning. But last week, we can't forget what we discussed. We discussed the appropriate and inappropriate uses of wealth. We determined that wealth and having money isn't necessarily wrong or sinful, but there are appropriate ways and inappropriate ways to use your wealth. We concluded that internal, or internal, excuse me, not internal, we concluded that eternal, that's more important, eternal investing produces everlasting yields. It is good to invest your money to get a yield back. But the best way that we can ever invest are in things that are eternal, so everlasting yields can be received. We invest our wealth, and we decided and we determined that wealth is any excess beyond our basic needs. Sometimes we think wealth are just those who can afford the house on the hill with the fancy car. That's not wealth. Wealth is anything beyond when your basic needs are met. So it doesn't matter if it's one cent or a gazillion dollars. It is what you do with what's left over that the Lord has entrusted you with. And the the whole key is to take that money and invest it in ministries that share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to realize that suffering is not an option And that's why we talked about going back to the beginning of James chapter 1. In fact, we are already looking at James 1, 2, where it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You're going to meet trials of various kinds. You cannot dodge your way around that problem. So when we do, we are to exercise, as we see this morning on the title of our sermon, Patience While Suffering. We're going to be encouraged today to be in a position to remain steadfast, all while upholding respect. And this is important, because this is how we're going to end this morning. All while, while you're suffering the whole time at the very end, upholding respect for the name of the Lord. Let's get into our text this morning and see exactly what James has for us from the fifth chapter, verses 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains? You also, be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. 
Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Amen. As we look at these verses this morning, we're going to go ahead and put them into this one sentence. Now, this one sentence isn't going to make complete and absolute sense out the gate. But as we continue on, this sentence will make more sense. And that sentence states this. Suffering is temporary for those who have established their hearts for eternity. Suffering is temporary for those who've established their hearts for eternity. Now, really, when you look at this sentence, you could just kind of make a note and say, this is a motivational sentence. This should motivate you. It should motivate you that suffering is only temporary for those who have established their hearts for eternity. Now, let's go ahead and get back into this text and see why this is true, because we start off with this. Be patient. James says, be patient. See, this is the exact same as saying, be patient as in long-suffering has the exact same concept. Now, it says, be patient, therefore. And now, when we get into the text and we ever see a therefore, we always ask the question, why is the therefore, therefore? Or what's the therefore, therefore? We can't forget last week, when we started chapter 5 of James in verses 1 through 6, it was the oppressors, they were the one who misused their wealth. But today, it's a little bit different. He's saying, See, these guys that misuse their wealth, therefore, those of you who are not going to misuse your wealth, today is about the oppressed who exercise patience. That's what today is all about. What does it say? Until the coming of the Lord. So, have you ever been treated unjustly? I mean, really, come on. You, do you think you've been treated unjustly? Have you ever been treated unfairly in your life? Do you know what that feels like? Have you ever been discouraged ever in life? If you can answer yes to any of those three simple questions, James is reminding us to what? Be patient. Because Jesus is coming. Now, we have this nice little illustration that James has actually provided for us. What does he say? See how the farmer waits. So the real encouragement in this statement is that the adjective there that we see, precious. That is the real encouragement, in my opinion, because it says precious fruit. Now, the fruit of our suffering is precious. But what we need to remember is this. The coming of the Lord is what's actually precious. And that is what's so important. And it's like what it says here, the farmer being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Brothers and sisters, long-suffering is part of being a Christian. If you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to be a Christ follower, then you should already know that long-suffering or just suffering in general is part of the territory. It comes with the territory of claiming to be a Christian. For some reason, many think that they come to the Lord and then all of a sudden their life is going to be easier. But if you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, you've realized that it is not 
easy. And if this wasn't the case, then why would the return of Jesus be so precious? See, if you suffer and then you get to that goal line, that end line, that finish line, that checkered line, it's that much sweeter. It's those who are wicked with their wealth, like we saw last week. Those are the ones that want to prolong their days on this earth. They are the ones that want to delay the coming of Christ because they're not suffering. And see, what do we do? We sit back, don't we? We sit back, we're the outside looking in, and we see what they have, and we we think to ourselves, well, if I just had that. I even had a guy this week tell me, well, if I won the lottery, and let me just fill you in here, I'm not going to play the lottery, and I would hope you don't either. But he said, if I won the lottery, I would just want enough to pay my bills off. And then what's next? What? You just paid off your bills? You think that's going to solve your problems? But see, that's what we do. We, we sit back and we look at the wealthy and we think, well, wait, they, they have it easy. Well, yeah, maybe they do. And maybe what they're doing with their wealth, you know, that amount of money beyond when their basic needs are met, maybe instead of investing in the kingdom for all of eternity, what are they doing? Oh, that's right. They're investing in their comfort. So why would they want Jesus to come back? We should want Jesus to come back. We don't want to delay His return. If we want to delay His return, then we need to self-examine ourselves compared to what the gospel teaches us about eternity. Because we know suffering, we should be eagerly anticipating the return of Jesus. And that's exactly what James is telling us this morning. See, for believers, it's quite the opposite. We're being challenged here to, as it says, establish our hearts. Because the greatest challenge of any believer is to respond right when you've been wronged. That is the greatest challenge. So, the question I think we could ask ourselves at this point is this. How do we establish our hearts? So, I would say it's simple. It's really the same way a triathlete would train for an Ironman. See, establish has the same meaning as the word strengthen. He's telling us to strengthen our hearts. A triathlete will strengthen their heart, will strengthen their lungs for the race that they have to race. Because why? Because they know race day is coming. It doesn't matter if they're six months out or they're in the 11th month of the 12th for that race. They know that eventually that race day is coming. And what do we know, church? We know as it says here, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Which is why in verse 9 it says, do not grumble against one another. This is the the same as saying, do not be a fault finder. Don't find fault in others. Don't be critical of others. Both of which lead to resentment. Both of which will tear apart the fellowship of a church. Brothers and sisters, the judge is standing at the door, as it says 
This reminds us of 2 Peter 3.8, not going to be on the screen. Allow me to read this for you. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Martin Luther said this. I just want to read his quote to you. I preach as though Christ died yesterday, arose from the dead today, and is coming back tomorrow. Robert Moffat said this. We have all eternity to celebrate our victories, but one short hour before sunset in which to win them. Judgment is coming for all of us. We don't want to be caught in fighting when judgment comes, especially because we know that will be the return of Jesus. So in verses 10 and 11, we continue on and we see James provide a practical example of patience while suffering. We have some examples to draw from the Bible here. And we would look no further first than Old Testament prophets and Job, as mentioned. See, the prophet had already established his heart. We know this is true because he was wrongly imprisoned by King Zedekiah, and he was left in this muddy prison to die. Jeremiah, the whole time, we do not see this in the text. We do not see Jeremiah do the one thing that connects us with what we see the encouragement in from James. We don't see him complain about God to his captors. He doesn't blame God for the situation that he's in. So when finally summoned by King Zedekiah, Jeremiah was, since he didn't complain about God to his captors, what do we see him do in Jeremiah 38, 20? Allow me to read this for you. Jeremiah said, you shall not be given to them. Obey now the voice of the Lord and what I say to you, and it shall be well with you and your life shall be spared. Despite his long suffering, he obediently spoke in the name of the Lord. Again, let me ask those three simple questions. Have you ever been treated unjustly? Have you ever been treated unfairly? Have you ever been discouraged? Hmm, right here. Jeremiah is a great example to us of how to respond when we have been. Now, Job, because he's mentioned here as well, right? He had already established his heart, and this is why God allowed Satan to ruin his life. See, Job was ready for his version of the Iron Man. His consistent obedience to the Lord is legendary throughout Scripture. And this is all because of his long suffering. Job learned something. And the one thing that he learned when he was done, or when the Lord was done with allowing Satan to do with what he did with him, strip him of everything, talk about having wealth, talk about having every creature comfort that you could possibly imagine. When that was done, Job learned repentance. Sounds familiar, familiar to us, doesn't it, with the gospel? The gospel is all about repentance. If there is no repentance, guess what? There's no gospel. There's no good news about who Jesus is. 
In Job chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, it says, I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Ultimately, Job learned compassion and mercy. And he learned this compassion and mercy from our Lord. Brothers and sisters, being treated unjustly, being treated unfairly, and being discouraged will lead us to a better understanding of our Lord's compassion and our Lord's mercy. We should actually be welcoming this behavior from others. Not so we can, you know, sit back and say, woe is me, look at me, how dare you treat me and make it all about us. No. It allows us to understand how compassionate and how merciful our Lord and Savior is. And then you go back and then you connect that to eagerly anticipating the return of Jesus. We've all felt these feelings. That's why we all need Jesus. Because after all, we'll all be judged The Lord's eternal compassion and mercy is really only achieved one simple way. And that's the reason why we titled our sermon what we titled it this morning. It's achieved through patience while suffering. Again, our main idea this morning stated this encouragement. Hopefully this is starting to make a little bit more sense to you. Suffering is temporary for those who've established their hearts for eternity. I mean, let's face it. Those who put the training in to do the Ironman and didn't take any shortcuts, they know it might take 13 hours, but those 13 hours are temporary. And then they get to go get the Ironman tattoo and show off and brag to everybody that they did it, or you get behind them and you see the, the bumper sticker. You know? You can, you can do a 5K and get one of those two or a 10K, so you don't have to do the full Ironman, so whatever. But the point is still the same. Suffering is temporary. That's the gospel. I mean, seriously, that's the gospel. I mean, people ask me all the time. I had a guy this week ask me, hey, there's a new church opened up on my house. I'm thinking about checking out this weekend. Can you look at it for me? What do you think? I knew nothing about this church. I got online. He showed me the website. I looked at it. They said all the right things. I don't know if this church is legit or not. I don't know if they're preaching the gospel. Pretty much every church, when you get on their website, they're going to say all the right things. Only thing I could really tell them was this. Hey, man, listen, you need to go, and then you just need to de determine if they're making eternity more of a priority than the temporal. That's it. It's that simple. There's one way to achieve eternity. That's through Jesus. So if the church is preaching eternity over this life and this life now, then you know that it is a gospel-centered church. Because... If the only way to eternity is through Jesus, then we know that that church is centrally focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ. All right, let me ask you this question. Who's ever done this before? My sisters used to make me do this all the time when I was younger. Trust me, I wouldn't want to do it in public, but it's a pinky promise. You guys ever done a pinky promise before? They were masters at making me do this, and it made me feel guilty. I had to tell the truth every time. But really, a pinky promise is nothing more than an oath. In an oath to define to you, for those of you that are, are curious what an oath is, an oath is a solemn appeal to a deity or just some revered person or thing. So do you know what else is an oath? 
There's a few things that are actually oaths that we don't realize that are actually oaths. When someone says, oh my, G-O-D, or they say, I swear to G-O-D, that's the same thing as taking an oath. After all, if you have to swear to God, though, if you really think about it, if you have to swear to God, what's that say about your credibility? Do you know what verse 12 tells us about these types of things, taking oaths? Really, verse 12, when you look at our final verse this morning, it tells us, don't do it. Don't do it. That, that's the thing of, like, secret societies. Even if you broke down the Freemasons, when it's all said and done, the oath that they take at the end of the day, they basically take an oath to commit suicide if they break any of that oath. So how do we start off then in verse 12? But above all, not that swearing an oath is more sinful than any other sin. It's not the most sinful sin that a sinner can sin. I'm not saying that. That's not what we're seeing. But this has the same idea as verse 9 where it says, do not grumble against one another. So when verse 12 says what it says, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, let your yes be yes and your no be no. What James is really saying I mean, he's already told us don't grumble against one another, but what he's really saying here is don't grumble against God, which is why he already gave us the example of Jeremiah. Jeremiah and Job had every opportunity to grumble and complain about what God had done to them, but they didn't. They still showed respect for the name of the Lord. So this is what I do when I want to know where someone is at with their walk with the Lord. And it's really simple. And we all can actually do the same. I listen. Just listen. Listen to what people are actually saying. It's the easiest way to know where they're at with their walk with the Lord. So as Joe comes up and joins me and we, we wrap up this morning... Brothers and sisters, when we swear by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, we actually put a curse on our own head. That's really what we're doing. Basically, we're attesting the same truth that we're calling God to witness. And we're doing this by invoking God's punishment, by violating our very own word, all for trying to convince someone else that we're telling the truth. Brothers and sisters, an oath is never necessary. Now, there's a few exceptions to the rule that are basically the same as an oath, but it's an eternal established oath in the gospel. And one thing I would think of would be your marriage covenant. That would be an exception to the rule, but other than that, there's no need. And the reason why we can say this is because God already knows our heart. And mankind will too if they only listen. What does Jesus tell us in Luke chapter 6, verse 45? He says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So the abundance of what's in your heart will come out of your mouth. When you listen, you have a really good understanding. 
And this helps in discipleship so you know how to disciple someone else in Christ. If I'm around somebody and they say, oh my G-O-D, and maybe they're just excited, that tells me a lot about what they know of the Lord and what they know of His Word. And we still need to be careful too with some of our substitutes. And I am guilty of this myself. Where we say, oh geez, or oh my gosh. What are we really substituting those words for? I'm guilty of saying, oh my goodness. But the bottom line is this. It's from the abundance of the heart that it comes out the mouth. And that is why, and therefore, why we should all establish what it says right here. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. But above all, and playing off of that phrase that we see here in verse 12, have patience while suffering. Because as we've already stated this morning, Suffering is temporary for those who've established their hearts for eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful to be able to gather together this morning. We are so thankful for this opportunity to take communion. And Lord, I want to mimic the words of Mike earlier if there are sins in our lives that we need to confess prior to taking communion, we must do so. Allow us to continue to be a church that learns how to more effectively share the gospel with others. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus who makes it possible. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information, look us up on our website, www.villasgrace.com or drop us a line via email connect at villasgrace.com.